The following Dharma talk was given by Maureen Jisho Ford. Jisho is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order and a retired social worker with the Ulster County Department of Mental Health. She began practicing at the monastery in 1985. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, please visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Sangha. Um, my name is, is Jisho, and um, the last time I was up here giving a talk was 29 years ago <laughs> when I was Shuso, so I'm a little rusty. Um, and, and the reason it was 29 years ago is not because they locked me up in a closet, but because I disappeared. I, took, I needed to leave for a while. It was the right thing to do for my practice. And I became a wanderer, and I finally came back home, where I belong. And thank you for taking me in and embracing me and making me feel like I had never left. Um, you know, I have to say that the view from here is awesome. <laughs> and, and I wasn't prepared for it because, um, I mean, I'm looking at all these people and so many faces, and um, just trying to, in my mind, add up the years and years and years and years and years of practice in this hall. And I can feel it. And so I'm just very, very grateful. And be gentle. I'm a little nervous. Not much. No, really. Um, so uh, anyway. Um, I also want to mention in passing that I spent nine years in a convent. I, I bring that up because it's an integral part of who I am, and in case I burst out in Latin chanting or something, you know, I'm not having a psychotic break, it's just from <laughs> my past. And, and I also want to say a, a word of welcome to the Sangha out there. I pray with all my heart and soul that my dear wife Natalie is out there. <laughs> 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 and for everyone else. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, in considering, you know, um, when, you know, when Shugan asked me if I was ready to give a talk, I said yes, but the answer was no. But, but um, I just figured it was time to step up. And so I kept putting it off. And then I made a really mistake when I realized that I shouldn't have put it off to this weekend. Because this is like a, um, you know, there's a lot of people here. Um, so in considering, what could I possibly offer to the, to the Sangha that might be useful or helpful in some small way? Um, I considered that um, what's resonating for me now uh, very much is um, it's all the anger in the world. I mean, we talk about the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. And it, it just seems to me that, um, I don't know where it's come from, but um, it's almost uncomfortable, I find it. I mean, it's at a level, the anger in our society is at a level um, where it's okay. This is a part I find so disturbing. It's okay for us to say the most vile, angry, wicked, ugly thing without shame. 
We used to have to whisper it, but now it's out loud. And it, it seems from my perspective that um, when it becomes acceptable to express our hate so publicly um, in words and in actions, what does that do to us you know, as an individual and as a society? What are we doing and how can we change it? And I left my magic wand in the shop, so it's not working, but I can't change anything. All I can do is change me. And all you can do is change you. And so I thought that for a little bit, we could just take a look at, uh, of all the poisons, it, it seems to me that, that anger is the most, um, so hate, so harmful. And now, um, Buddha once said, said that anger is like picking up burning charcoal in my bare hand to fling at my enemy. Um, that, that doesn't make any sense. But we do it. We do it all the time. And we don't realize all the things that are going on and all the levels of emotions that we're feeling. And I thought today I could pull it apart just a little bit um, by looking at first the contribution that Western psychology has to make to our understanding of um, working with the emotions and specifically with um, anger. And I think that one of the most interesting things that Western psychology has to say about anger is they say that anger is um, not a terminal emotion. What does that mean? It's not the final emotion. It's not the strongest emotion. Now, I have found this to be true in my life, but please don't take my word for it. You discover this for yourself. And what I've discovered is that Western psychology happens to have it right, I believe, that underneath my anger is a softer, more vulnerable, more tender, more gentle emotion that I don't feel comfortable feeling. Why? Because it makes me too vulnerable. And so our impulse is when we feel threatened, frightened, shamed, uh, we, we jump right over that softer emotion and we go right to anger because anger makes us feel how, right? You feel in charge, you feel powerful, you hope you got an army behind you, but you feel really ready to take on an army. Um, and so I think that one of the first things we should do is take a look at perhaps or consider the idea that there's something underneath the anger. Usually, if you look, I find it's usually hurt, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I feel threatened, I feel confused, I feel disappointed. Now, so that's one of the reasons why anger is so tricky, because we never recognize the, the real deal. What we're really upset about is that softer, more vulnerable emotion, but we're very busy being angry, and that takes up a lot of time and distracts us from what's hurting. And um, I could um, give you a, a really simple example so um, I almost called um, Shugen Roshi up last week and said, I can't give this talk. And, and this was so strange to me 
because I have a lot of, um, like most people, we have anxieties and fears or whatever, things we don't like to do. But I usually don't have a hard time talking in public, so I couldn't figure out what had me so, I can't do this, I'm not going to do it, I don't want to do it, I won't show up. You know, that was not an option, but anyway. Um, it, it occurred to me, it occurred to me. Um, and I actually put off writing this. I cannot tell you, I'm still writing this on Sunday. I mean, I really procrastinated because, but what it did was it forced me to do what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> so it forced me to kind of like look really closely what is going on there because, it, because the idea of talking to you folks doesn't really scare me. So um, without getting into a lot of detail, when I looked really closely, what was I saw that something what was being triggered in me um, were feelings that went way back to childhood that had nothing to do with anybody in the Zendo, anybody in the Sangha, anybody here. It was all my stuff. I was projecting onto this whole situation all kinds of stuff that were very old and went back to my relationship with my sister, which has nothing to do with this. And the, the minute I kind of saw it, it kind of like changed everything because then I wasn't afraid to come here. So that's like a little example of what I'm talking about when I'm telling you from my own experience, there is always, always, always something underneath the anger. And we're fools if we don't look at it because that's the real deal. That's what's really bothering us. Now, um, so I, I also wanted to give you an example of, um, um, you know, one of the things that, that never ceases to amaze me, <laughs> I always think maybe I'm there, but actually I, never, I think I'm never going to get there, and that's actually the way I want it. I'll tell you about that why later. But when things get a little bit calmer and things seem to be moving nicely, um, <clears throat> I... Um, Well, I kind of lost that train of thought, sorry. Um, but personally, I can say that I will never cease to be amazed at my ability to deceive myself about what I'm feeling. Not because I'm evil or bad, but because my conditioning over thousands and thousands of lifetimes is so strong that it gets in the way, it keeps me from seeing. And I, was going to give you an example of um, something that happened about three years ago. So my daughter, who is in her early 40s, um, decided, um, and I want to protect her privacy, and this is not about her at all. This is all on me. But she decided that I think she needed to go through some individuation, some more separation from mom. You know, and um, it was not pleasant the way it played out. It was, uh, it was not pleasant, but it was not evil. There was nobody bad here. Everyone was trying to do the right thing, but people were getting hurt anyway, including me. It was as if, I mean, it seemed as if while she worked out her, her issues, which were very real, which she had every right to work out, that she needed to have no contact with me. So it felt like my daughter had died, and I didn't know when it was going to end, 
and I couldn't stop crying. And it, it was, of all the things I think I've experienced in, in my life, I think that was probably the most painful because it was, for all intents and purposes, my daughter was dead and I had no idea how to make it better or what I had done even. And it isn't that I had done anything horrible. It's just like, if your parents here, you know, when your kids get to be a certain age, you know, it's, it's like, um, well, basically it's this. This is, this is the rule, you know, if you want to call it a rule. It's a good way to live, though, to have, when you have kids. Have them, love them, and let them go. And I am telling you, by far, the hardest thing I have ever done, really, I mean, it is no small deal to let go of your daughter. But, and that's what I needed to do. So she had every right to have individuate for me and not have me there all the time, driving her crazy, whatever I did, didn't matter. So, um, so one day, a good friend of mine, actually, um, significantly younger than me, too, who was still very wise, I was talking to her about my daughter. And as I'm talking to her, she says to me, you know, I notice every time you, you talk about her, you know, you sound resentful. And let me back up, though. Let me back up before we get to that. As I'm talking to her, telling her stories about my daughter, you know, every one of them, she's coming back with, well, that sounds normal. Well, that's reasonable. I know plenty of kids my age who feel that way about their parents. And I'm thinking, and the thought popped into my head. And it was like a split second. I didn't even get to think the thought through. But it was like, what am I saying wrong? Why isn't she agreeing with me? <laughs> and I saw that. And like a little alarm went off. You know, and I thought, uh-oh. Then, when, then she, she says to me the part about, um, whenever you talk about her, I hear that you always sound resentful. And when she said it, I went, oh, my God. She's right. And it was the perfect word, the absolutely most perfect word she could have picked. Because resentment carries with it, um, at least for me, the connotation was wanting something I'm not entitled to. Wanting. I wanted, 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 wanted. And it wasn't mine to want. She was a grown woman with a family of her own, a child of her own, and a career of her own. And um, I don't know what happened, but my friend gave me that wonderful gift. It was kind of like just seeing it, sometimes just seeing it, you know, frees you from it. And that's the point I'm trying to make or to share with you today, um, my experiences of anger um, that we always need to look um, below the surface for what we're really, truly feeling. Now, uh, another reason why anger can be so difficult to work with is because we don't come into the world knowing how to deal with it. Um, you know, we come in knowing some fundamental instinctual stuff, like we certainly know how to, to, to latch onto a nipple. We, you know, babies know to toss blankets off their head, but not a clue. And I don't know that anybody, nobody ever gave me any lessons in anger. Oh, I had lessons. I'll get to the lessons, but they weren't very helpful. And I'm sure that what I taught was taught is, is, is going to be very similar to what you, you were taught as a kid. So, um, all right. 
So you, um, so we learn a kind of a lot of crazy wrong things when we're kids about anger. So um, when I was about twelve, my sister and I, who's two years older, must have been fighting, and I guess I don't know that it was any worse than any other fight we'd ever had. But apparently, my mother had reached, and so she says to my father, "Take her to church and take her to confession." And I said, why me? And I'm sure many of you will know the answer. Because you're the oldest, and you should know better, right? So <clears throat> I get dragged into the confessional with my father waiting outside, and the church is packed. It's a Saturday afternoon. Everybody's going to confession. And the kids in the Catholic school had been taken to confession a little bit earlier because I think there was a feast day. So I had been on Thursday to confession, right? So the stage is set. I am now walking into the confessional two days later. So all I get out is, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's two days since my last confession. And I hear, what? This priest, you know, who's like three times the size of me, because you really can't see them, but he stands up at the confessional and he starts screaming. I mean, really. And I started to shake. I didn't know. what, And he's yelling at me that I... What kind of a person could I be who committed a sin two days later? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, we all laugh now, but I'll tell you, that was traumatizing because I thought I was going to hell. It was very scary. But, but, so, but that's, and then later on I thought, but you know, I was in trouble because I got angry and he got angry, but I didn't, he didn't get in trouble and, it, and he wasn't very helpful either. So, um, so at any rate... Um, so, so the, one of the earliest memories I had when I was a kid was um, I was about five and the boys would be playing stickball on the street and for some strange reason they decided to, to make fun of me a little kid and they were calling me Lucifer which was a very bad name as far as I was concerned and I was very very upset and crying so my aunt wanted to help me out and she's standing in back of me and I'm sobbing sobbing, tears are coming down, don't call me that. And she says, Selin. So she tells me to say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Meanwhile, of course they're hurting me. I'm sobbing, crying. So this was the kind of crazy, mixed, weird messages I got. Another message I'm sure you all got too was, um, um, yeah, did anybody ever, uh, I learned it was a sin to express my anger by using a word I heard my parents use. But it was like really crazy, but I had to eat a bar of soap because I called my sister that word at any rate. So, so it was confused. But, and I say it, and it's sort of funny, but what does it say about, about us and the way we raise our children? Did anybody ever talk to you about how to contain your anger or hold it? Um, it's such a primitive, overwhelming feeling. So, it's tricky. Uh, so, you know, um, one of the things that we, I want to look at what we do when we get angry. Most people do this. When we get angry, and we're not aware of anything else, only that anger, and we want to um, do harm, uh, we, the first thing we do is we replay the incident over and over and over again. 
we, we play it in our head, and we're going to tell the person the next time we see them, we've got it all rewritten. Only they don't have, they have the script. But we spend a lot of time rewriting it over in our heads, what we're going to say, what we're going to do, and all we're doing is feeding the anger. After we replay it for a while, the next thing we do with our anger, if you look really closely, is we edit our memory. It's not conscious. We don't do it deliberately. But we change the memory. And each time we edit it, each, we edit it a little bit more so that it's, so by the time the, the editing is done, what I've edited to bears absolutely no resemblance to anything that happened in reality because I've just rewritten the whole thing. Um, and then the last thing we will sometimes do when we're really angry is we'll go out and recruit our friends, you know, after we edit it and play it around and make us right. We will then tell our friends, you know, you know what he did to me? No, fooling. Yes, 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 yes. You know, and then the next thing you know, you know, so what we're doing is we have an army, you know, and if this army of friends happened to have a couple of bombs, we would start a war, really. How does war start? There's nothing but people getting angry at each other. So, so that's one of the things I observed about anger. And the last thing I want to say about growing up with it is, and how I, we all learned, I'm sure you learned in a similar way, um, the way we learn about anger, actually, is we watch how our family does anger. So if you are British or Irish, you simmer. And if you're Italian, you explode. Uh, and I know I can say that because I'm half Italian, but I lived with my mother's side of the family who was Italian, and there were, she was one of nine kids. And... Um, uh, I could just say that sometimes living in my house was like uh, being in the third act of an Italian opera. It was a lot of drama and, and a lot of anger, but the anger seemed to blow over, except in cases when grudges were held. I had two uncles go to the grave, not talking to each other, and not knowing. I don't know what's the matter. I tried to make peace. I'd say to my uncle, why don't you talk to Uncle Mike? Why not? Because of what he did. What did he do? He knows what he did. He, he knows. He knows what he did. I'm sure neither one of them remembered. <laughs> but, but, but the point is that we just can't let it go. And it's killing us. It's killing us. So, so, so I, I thought that, um, okay, sorry. Um, so I wanted to talk about some of the basic ways that, that we experience anger, say from a, um, a psychological perspective. And um, I just wanted to give a little credit to the psychologist who, who developed this particular module. Her name is Marsha Lenahan. She's a PhD. She's a very well-known psychologist, but she's a long-time Zen student. And I had read that she had been transmitted to by her teacher who was a German Benedictine monk. But now that I look back on it more recently, when I looked this up, I couldn't find any mention of it. It looked like it had been erased almost, which wouldn't surprise me because Marsha Lenahan is, she'd said she's going to be teaching, she's teaching clinicians how to use this particular 
way of working with people who have issues of um, anger, suicidality. She's, there's a, I don't want to get too technical or clinical about it, but she does tremendous work with, with mostly women because the men who have this problem wind up in jail, you see, and the women almost wind up in jail. But the behavior that you see is that um, tremendous amount of anger, depression, substance abuse, um, and um, suicidality, attempts at it. So can you imagine the kind of pain you'd have to be in to even attempt suicide? Because it's really a scream for help. And these particular clients would make attempts. And even though they might not have wanted to succeed, sometimes they did by accident, you know? So um, this was a very challenging group of people to work fit with. I worked with them at Ulster County Mental Health. And we used to have a little blue buttons under our desks to ring, to pull, because sometimes it would get out of hand. I once had to go and get a couple stitches in my leg because somebody threw something at me because they wanted a drug, which I couldn't prescribe anyway. So, but, but I'm telling you this because perhaps you don't encounter people like this in your everyday life. And these people are like this because of the way and the way they were raised in the homes that they live in. So there, but for the grace of God, could go you or me. They were never, probably not held very much as kids, never taught to um, soothe themselves, never nurtured, never soothe. So if it wasn't done to them, they don't know how to do it. And so they take to, frequently they've had histories of, of post-traumatic stress disorder and been abused at home. And so they take to uh, drugs to medicate that terrible pain. And so Marshall Lenahan was the first person to come in. And, and in the 80s, she began it to develop a model for treating these folks. And the entire model, the entire model is based on mindfulness. When she was first doing it, you would see lines of, of clients walking in, in clinics doing kinhen. I mean, she would do anything, use any, anything that she found in Zen or from any place else to help these folks. And it was the only thing I ever saw that really did begin to work. So she starts by, um, again, it's based in mindfulness, and she's getting them to look at the ways they experience anger. And so the most intense way that we experience anger, usually the person's yelling, I'm angry, and their face is red, and their heart's beating, and their pulse is racing, and you know, their eyes are bulging, and there's nothing in the whole world but that anger. There's no, it's like this, I am angry, and it's such a rage that it fills the universe in 10 directions, and if you're in their way, you could get hurt. It's in that stage of anger that we actually do see people do horrible things. And, and the reason the horrible things happen is because we, we know this from science that um, the amygdala is part of the primitive brain. And when that gets stirred or frightened or triggered in any way, before the, the um, cerebral cortex 
has a chance to even say, hmm, is this reasonable? Do I want to do this? The cerebral cortex gets overlooked, okay? So you have basically um, a crazy person in there because the cerebral cortex has left the house and you have a very enraged person who's not thinking clearly. It's just emotion. So when, and so so this is the, the first stage of anger that we would see at the clinic. And I don't know if you know any people like this in your life who are this angry. But this can be really, really be a problem. It can get to be a problem, um, particularly if there's any violence. And if there is violence, we notice that violence tends to increase. Um, so in that stage of anger, when we experience it, I'm hoping we don't go throw things and we're not quite as over the edge as the folks here are, um, anger's a poison. Now, the next way that anger manifests itself when there's been a little bit of control brought in is we we no longer are saying, I'm angry. We're saying, I feel angry. Can you hear the difference? Do you get the difference between, I'm angry and I feel angry? There's a subtle difference there. Because in I feel angry, this is I'm angry. I mean, there's anger in you and who knows what's in there. It's insane. But it's just raw anger. This is I feel angry. A little tiny space, a few seconds, just a little, and that, a little gap. And that gap is, we need that gap. We absolutely need that gap, or we'll have no way to, to ever get out of the I'm angry. So when we establish a mindful gap, we now have an opportunity to deal with the anger more skillfully because there's more awareness and understanding. And we can take the situation in a little better, too. Now, um, and the better we understand the anger and what we're angry about, the more we develop the ability to hold the anger. Now, it's really difficult to move from I am angry to I feel angry. But one of the things that's necessary and will help you make the move is be not wanting to feel I am angry, deciding, hmm, this isn't working, you know, I can wind up in jail, I can do harm. Something motivates us. And it's at that point that we try to teach them to just step back from the anger, hold it if they can. But if they can't, they can leave the premises, but not to act on it. Um, That takes a lot of time. But one of the things that people begin to experience is a sense of empowerment because they no longer feel themselves being driven by the anger, because now they have the sense that there's this gap there, and I can choose. I can choose just to be still. Now, and what happens when we're in this stage, we're feeling the anger, um, one of the things that comes up, and it has to come up, is regret. Now, I know we all aspire 
to die with no regrets, as, as do I. But without regret, there's just no motive or no, nothing to push us to change our behavior. We have to have the capacity to look back at our actions and say, I wounded that person. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to do this. I don't want to cause harm. We actually need to feel bad. And that's why you see some people who are labeled sociopaths, they don't have that capacity. For whatever reason, they can't feel regret. So regret is the beginning of our making a change when it comes to anger, when we just decide, I don't want to be this way anymore. You know? so it's kind of like the way we were is no longer how we see ourselves. It's, it's, they call it egodystonic in therapy. The way we see ourselves, we're not in harmony with how we're behaving. We want to be, we want to, we want to be the way who we aspire to be. And so that's why regret can be very helpful. Not blame, not shame, regret. And regret sometimes um, does, does have penalties to it, depending on how far you've gone. And, and uh, penalties is the wrong word. Um, well, can't think of the word, but uh, anyway. Consequences, consequences. And you have to make amends when, when, you're, when you've caused people uh, to, to be hurt like that. Another thing that, um, that this modality does is teaches people what they call chain analysis. So Marsha Lenahan, um, if you were her patient and you tried to kill yourself, you would not want to see her the next day. Not because she was mean. She was never mean. No. But she didn't go to the, oh, you poor thing. Why did you do that? No, she didn't. You know what I mean? She didn't mother them or baby someone who did that. She didn't yell, scream, or tell them they were no good. She would do what's called chain analysis. And it was, and basically a chain analysis is just looking so she would, and see when it started. So she would say to the client, um, so when did you, where were you when you f the thought first came into your head, I'm going to kill myself? Where were you? Who were you with? What were you thinking? What were you doing? And this goes on and on and on. I mean, they could be in there two or three hours before she finished the chain analysis with them. And as she did it, all along the way, she would help them say, when could you have stopped it? What could you have done differently? What skill? And she taught them loads of skills that have to do with being mindful and being able to soothe and comfort yourself. She would teach them these things. And um, with the chain analysis and with lots of practice and lots of mindfulness, folks were really able to, to make progress. And I saw it myself. And at, at this stage, you know, um, Anger sort of became a friend because it was something they could, um, or even that I could manage. And I, I learn, you learn from your anger. Well, what am I angry about? And what's underneath it? So it's like a friend. It's a teacher. It's showing you stuff. So not to be afraid of it, but to be open. What will I learn from this? What's underneath the anger? And then the third step that, that she would work with them on is... Um, and I have to say, this, this kind of blew me away, and I 
didn't really get the full impact of it until I was in practice for quite a few years. At any rate, the patient will move toward being able to say, a feeling of anger has come up. So we're going from, I'm angry and I'm going to kill you if I catch you, run, to, I feel angry, to, a feeling of anger has come up. So what's so different about this? There's certainly awareness there. They're certainly feeling the anger. But the other thing that's there, or maybe I should say, what's not there? Who is it who's angry? A feeling of anger has come up. I don't see anybody in there who's angry. Where'd the anger go? There doesn't seem to be any object of the anger. Uh, A feeling of anger has come up. A feeling of anger has come up. There's no one angry. There's no one to be angry with. It's not personal. What happens when the person who's angry disappears and the thing or the person I'm angry with isn't there? I mean, the Tibetans in their tradition, when this happens um, with people who practice, and all kinds of things happen when people practice for a while, And sometimes it will happen that um, a person might experience anger, and as soon as the anger comes up, very shortly afterwards, you don't see it. It's almost like magic. You know, where did the anger go? But it's not magic. The anger, according to Tibetans, uh, way of seeing this, um, they call this uh, step, they said the anger is self-liberating, self-liberating. So those are just little nuggets to, to chew on. Um, and I actually have to say that I have seen people with quite a few years of practice under their belt, not, not Zen, but I have seen clients come to this point. Not in the same way maybe that a Tibetan practitioner might or a Zen practitioner might, but certainly where they have much, 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 much more control. And don't take it so personally. That's the key thing about anger. Never personal. So I also thought that in maybe making this a little bit um, helpful for as many folks as possible, I might talk a little bit about anger in terms of our our intimate relationships. Um, And the, the caveat is that most of this would be applicable, applicable to other relationships as well. Relationships that endure, like practice, require that we attend to them. They don't just happen. So unlike what I was told as a child, that the handsome prince doesn't marry the beautiful, uh, doesn't marry the beautiful princess, and then they both live heavily, happily ever after. It took me a while to figure out why that wasn't right for me. Because I didn't want to marry the handsome prince. I wanted to marry the handsome or the pretty lovely princess. (laughs) And I did. So, (laughs) um, but, um, okay. So, 
So in talking about intimate relationships, I just want to qualify that marriage is certainly not the only way that you can have an intimate relationship. I mean, there are so many ways. My daughter told me that she has friends from college who are very happy and they're flourishing and they're in something called the trouble. So that's three people. So, and they're happy, it's working, okay. So, anyway, that's fine. Um, so, but I guess what I'm saying is if you, you know, if you love somebody, you love them. And if it's more than one person, well, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think this is an important thing I wanted to mention here, um, which is something I learned when I was in grad school in doing therapy. Um, whenever I would start therapy with uh, a couple, I would always preface the, the, the beginning of the session by saying, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Because you can't have both. You cannot have both. Do you want to win the argument? At what price? How far are you prepared to go? Words that can never be taken back? Have you ever won an argument? Seriously, has anybody here ever won an argument? I can say for a fact I have never in my entire life won an argument. Have I had arguments? You betcha. But I'm serious. Think about it for a minute. Have you ever really won an argument? Don't you just storm off in opposite directions? Does anything get resolved? Do you even know what you're fighting about? So, um, and what do you win when you win an argument? Hmm? What do you win? And at what cost? One of the other things that I, I'm offering to you for your consideration, because I came across it a lot in my work, um, is, is that are our expectations reasonable? Particularly with relation in an intimate relationship, but any kind of a relationship, actually. Um, it's not unusual, I've found, to hope or expect that our partner will fulfill all our needs. And when that doesn't happen, we can sometimes feel disappointed, let down, or angry. But we're not so aware that we're feeling this. That's the surprise part. You don't know you're feeling it. You know, it's kind of like maybe some people think, okay, I did that, now I'm married. What's next? The marriage. And it's, it, it's always needing tending. It's never to be taken for granted. Um, so, and, you know, when that happens, uh, I, I really think that people don't realize it and that that is the, the hidden seed um, in, in many relationships that, that just ferments and no one goes near it. They don't talk about it because they're not so sure what's going on. And... And therein lies the problem. That has been my experience. This, this dynamic in relationships, expectation, okay, followed by disappointment, followed by anger, followed by arguing and fighting, repeated endlessly without any understanding, no understanding of what we're feeling. We just know we're angry, that's all. 
We don't want to feel the other feelings. He doesn't bring me flowers anymore. Seriously. Or, or I mean, there's no time for the, the, the tender stuff, the, the stuff that needs to happen to nurture a marriage. We sometimes just drop it. And I've been married, well, my wife and I have been together for 41 years, and then um, they've been happy, happy, happy 41 years. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, I won't sing it because I can't sing, but I think somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good because I can't possibly deserve to be this happy, but I am. And it didn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. So I'm going to make some suggestions that I find that, that work when we, you know, to avoid angry fights. One of the things I like to practice a lot um, is, is I like to pay attention to the, um, the awareness. I like to be aware of um, my tone of voice. Uh, and not, not just the words, but I want to be aware of the, the tune. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, I'm making this up. Nellie and I do not talk like this. This never happened. But it's, a, it's, a, it's what I mean by listening to, but really, really being open. You have to be open. You have to be willing to have your heart broken. You have to be willing to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to feel the pain. And if you're not, then, I don't know, maybe marriage isn't for you. Or maybe, I shouldn't say that. But relationships are difficult. So here's an example. Um, so let's say that, um, and this is not at all true. Say it was my turn to cook, and Natalie comes home from work, or wherever she's been, and she says to me, what's for supper? And I say, meatloaf. And she says, meatloaf again? And I say, you got a problem with that? And she says, yeah, I got a problem with that. How many nights in a row are we going to have meatloaf? And I said, what do you think? I've been laying on the couch all day eating bonbons? Well, it sure looks like you have, and ba-boom. Okay? And now, now, so we're screaming at each other, right? What are we fighting about? Will you tell me what we're fighting about? We're not fighting. What are we fighting about? I'll tell you one thing. It's not about the meatloaf. <laughs> it, it's never... It's never about the meatloaf. Really, honest to God, it's never about the meatloaf. Um, so how, how could I, but how could I change that? How, how could I be more, and this is a great word. I love this word, skillful. Skillful. Not how could I be better or good. It's so dualistic, but how could I be skillful, more skillful? So, so, Natalie comes home from work and she says to me, what's for supper? And I say, meatloaf. And she says, meatloaf again. And I say, and this is the crooks, everything hangs on the next word. I can make it heaven or I can make it hell. So I look at her and I say to her, gee, you sound like you had a hard time today. And everything changes because it was never about the meatloaf. So she'll say to me, some idiot almost rode, dra- rode, you know, rode me, drove me off the road, or, or so-and-so did this, or so-and-so did that. Trust me, we do not fight about things like burnt meatloaf. It's feelings, and there's this. So, 
So this is something that I encourage folks to do, to just be aware. We have to listen to the, the tune that they're saying, not just the words. I mean, if we would still be fighting about meatloaf if I was listening to the words. And um, so, like, sometimes Natalie will, um, oh, I know, she was teasing me a couple of nights ago, and I said to her, shut up, in, in a playful way, because she was teasing me. And then I stopped and said, and we both looked at each other, she said, you know, we never use that word. We, I mean, we, we don't. We don't talk to each other that way. We've never talked to each other that way. I love her too much. Even when she makes me angry, I love her too much. Because you can never take back. You can never take it back. So you need to leave the room or you need to say, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I just can't do this now. But what's happened in our life together is we all, we've gotten to the point where we always know it's not about the meatloaf. So it's, it's, what, are we, what are we really, what's really going on here? And that's such a valuable tool. If you can bring that to a relationship, um, it will, uh, I think, be very valuable to you. And I guess um, I just wanted to end with, um, um, I'll give you one more example of, of anger. Uh, this is not in a relationship. I mean, this is in friends. So you got a friend and your friend says to you, you know, I have to move my, from my fourth floor walk up and I have a grand piano and do you think you can come and help me move next day, you know, or tomorrow? And you go, oh, gee, I'd love to help you, but I have a doctor's appointment. I can't go. So that friend says, oh, well, I can change my moving date <laughs> because you just love to help them move. If only you didn't have that darn doctor's appointment, right? You're raring to go. Help them move there. So... <laughs> So the point I'm making here is it ain't about moving the... It's not about that. This is something else that I found helpful. And it's all about knowing what you're feeling. So when your friend says, would you help me move or do something you don't want to do, what do you feel? Okay, well, you can play with it. But, um, you know, you think, oh, God, I don't want to move him. And then you feel kind of angry because you're being asked to do something you don't want to do. And you give him an excuse, but the excuse is not true. It's a lie. You're implying, oh, I'd love to help you. I truly would, but I have this doctor's appointment, which is baloney. So in this kind of a situation, we need to, the problem is we don't want to say, gee, you know, I'm not going to be able to help you move, but I can come over with beer and pizza, or I can help you unpack um, because we don't like to feel guilty. So in order to avoid feeling guilty, frequently when people ask us to do something we don't want to do, we say yes, but we don't want to. But good news, we got rid of the, uh, the guilt. The guilt's gone, right? So what's it replaced with? You know, what's it replaced with? You kind of feel resentful and angry. So we, we need to own our feelings. They're not right or wrong. It's how we deal with them. Can we say to the person, um, depending on the relationship, I don't, can't give you the right answer whether you want to help them or not. The point I'm getting at is, what are you feeling? Do you know what you're feeling? And are those actions just being driven by blind emotion? Or is there some 
what we call observing ego uh, and compassionate heart. Compassionate, maybe you do want to help. Maybe you're so compassionate you want to help this guy, even though you don't want to help him, you want to help him. So help him. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just trying to pinpoint that we look at um, our, our emotions and um, be honest with ourselves. First of all, we lie to ourselves a lot. I lie to myself quite a bit. Um, so I think that's about all I would have to, to say, except that um, make eye contact with people. Make eye contact with your significant other. Make eye contact with the person who gives you coffee in the morning. Make contact with every human being. Eye contact with every human being you come across. And I'm telling you, your life will be richer for it. And they'll smile and you'll smile. And the world will be a little better place. Um, we are fooling ourselves that we think there is nothing left to examine, nothing left to explore or discover. Our capacity to fool and deceive ourselves is boundless. That's one of the reasons we have teachers. Instead of cringing when we discover another unexplored dark cave within, we might try to see it as one more opportunity to set ourselves free. This path is without end. It's just endless. And the day I stop discovering new things to investigate and explore new challenges, new heights to climb. Take my pulse because I am probably dead. Uh, I've, I've told this to Shugenoshi before, and I said to him, you know, if I ever show up in Doksan and he tells me, you're all done, there's nothing left to explore, you've got it, kid, you know, nothing left to do, I would be, I would be crushed and devastated, and I would be very displeased with him. <laughs> because he would be robbing me. He would be taking, what a thing to do to somebody. What a thing, there are no more things to see, no more things to learn, no more growth to do, no more compassion to feel, no more love to give, no more anything. I mean, you know, so don't ever do that, please. <laughs> Um, so, so, yeah, I would, I would feel greatly robbed um, because he would take from me the opportunity from that, that poem, Tennyson, so important, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. The path is endless, the dharmas are boundless, and to quote Daito Roshi, all the way to heaven is heaven. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org.